Uh, it's really appropriate that we've just sung that song. It talks about the idea of uh, a home that we have not yet seen. Um, and that's one of the key themes that we see in the Bible. Uh, we see it right the way through the Old Testament, where again and again and again we see the idea of traveling back to a home, traveling to a place that God has promised. That should be important to us because it's repeated. When the Bible repeats things, ideas, on many occasions, they are there to, to really push us into thinking it's repeated because it's got something to say which is more significant than a land which was temporary. So in the Old Testament, what we see again and again is we see people traveling back to the promised land. Well, the promised land is no longer that land. It's not uh, held in that same way. We, as Christians, we don't see a particular geographical location as important. In fact, that's really critical when we think about the Christian faith. Unlike many religions who have particularly holy places, the Christian faith doesn't have that idea of a holy place. And yet we still have the idea of traveling to somewhere or a home that we have not yet seen. One of those key ideas. Uh, and we're going to think a little bit about that, the idea of traveling home. And the reason is because right at the beginning, we see that Jacob, uh, as we're working through this story of Jacob, he's come to a point in his life where he feels it is now right to go back to my homeland. We see that in verse 25. So last week we were seeing that uh, Jacob with his two wives, um, Rachel and Leah, uh, and then their two uh, servant girls, we see the building up of a family. We see uh, a, number of, um, fam a number of births, we see uh, children being born, and we see it now established. And in verse 25 uh, we, we read this, after Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me on my way so that I can go back to my homeland. Just to remind ourselves, why is he where he is? Uh, he's tricked his elder brother out of inheritance and birthright, and he's done a runner because they're fearful that they would kill each other. That's the mother's view, Rebecca's view. These two uh, adult sons are so violent towards each other, they could, I could end up losing them both. Let's get Jacob out of here, send him off to live with my brother Laban. And he travels over to find Laban uh, alone. And he ends up in Laban's family, established, marrying Laban's uh, two daughters and building up for himself a family. He's been there around about 20 years by this point in time. He has really established himself. He is now a mature man and he's, he's built, uh, um, in those days, what was a security. And yet he has this, this hankering, this need to go back home. I, I guess for many, you, you might not think quite like that. Home might be where you happen to be at this point in time, and you have no uh, particular desires to be home. But for many, even in our society, many of the songs that we see written have that idea of getting back home. The idea that finding our way back home is something really important to us. Traveling back to that place which we see as home. Uh, very often when people do go back home, it's not quite what they expected. I think really what's going on there is there is something deep written into us of, of unsettledness. 
Uh, we want to we travel somewhere. We want to get somewhere. We want to be somewhere. Uh, many of you might be at that point of thinking, you know, what, what's the future hold? Uh, traveling around and, and uh, many great things, seeing the world fantastic, wonderful. Don't spend your whole life doing that. Don't spend your whole life looking for the point of being settled because the reality is it's an indication that we are looking for a home, I think. But the home is actually not in this world. This idea of being exiled and traveling back is key. In fact, we see that the very next book in the Bible is called Exodus. Or in other words, the exiles leaving and going to a new place. Right the way through there. So here we see uh, Jacob saying to Laban, his uncle, look, it's now time for me to go back home. Send me on my way. I've got my children. I've got my wives. You know how much work I've done for you. I've been really faithful. I've really worked hard. And Laban says, if you've been following this story, what you've seen is there's all sorts of, it seems as though every, every step there's another deal. <laughs> there's another kind of negotiation. Uh, it's fascinating to see this kind of relationship going on. It says a lot about how we are really, doesn't it? We're always looking to kind of feather our own nest. We're always looking to see how we can get the best out of something. And what we see in the lives of Jacob, what we see in the lives of Laban is exactly that. They're constantly looking after number one. How can I get the best out of it? And so Laban says to him, uh, look, um, I understand that uh, I've found favor because you've been here. So just name your wages uh, and you can go. Name your price. Jacob says, turns around to him and he says, I don't want anything. I don't want money. Here's what I would suggest is fair. We've got this little picture that's going on, this kind of conversation that's going on, and Jacob says, in the middle of this deal, we actually see, I think, a man who is growing up. I wanted to encourage you last week. The Christian faith, is not about a single step of simply believing and then that's it. We've got to grow up in our faith. We've got to mature in our faith. And what we see in the life of Jacob is a, a man who is growing up, who is maturing, who is becoming what he should be, not what he once was. Little by little, he's not the, he's not the perfect thing, but he's taking steps forward. What we've seen up to now with Jacob is he's been a bit of a kind of wide boy. He's a bit of a wheeler dealer. He's always looking. And now he's beginning to calm. I don't want anything from you. Here's what I think is fair, he says. I will make myself less. One of the great things about um, the ancient world at that particular point in time is all of the measures of what made you successful were so much simpler. You know, they were the obvious. They were the simple things. Our, our, our society is filled with all of the kind of... There's so many other different ways in which we measure our success. Uh, whether it's, you know, 
the possessions that we have or, or the things that we know or so many other things. It was really simple. It was our flocks, it was our wives, it was the, the family that we'd managed to build up because after all, they were our security. Uh, without any kind of welfare state, the, uh, the idea of having a family that would look after you when you're unable to do literally do anything for yourself, who would take care of you and love you and support you, that family network and the growing number of people within your wider family, which basically, in simple terms, made it safer to live. That was the idea. It's, it's literally a world where there is safety in numbers. You could at any moment be attacked by some other clan, some other family. So the idea of a growing family, the idea of a, a big family was not something which was simply a cultural thing. It was a very practical thing. If I had many sons, if I had many fighting men in my sons and my grandsons and these cousins and wider generations, I would be, a, I would be more secure. I would be safer. That's why it was considered a blessing. That's why the 11 sons that Jacob had were, to him, uh, a sign and an ind indication that he was going to be safer. He traveled alone to Laban, and now he's leaving with a degree of security. At the point where he was, could easily have been picked off as an individual, he's now surrounded. There's, there's a gathering of them. Uh, there was a, a fascinating program on TV a few months ago where uh, there was um, uh, a trip across the desert, a, a car uh, trip across the desert. It's a, it's a place which is really, I can't remember which country it was in, but it was a dangerous place to be. Uh, and what happened was that there would be a gathering in one, this town of all of the people who were going to make this trip across the desert. And then they'd all make the trip together because it was safer if you travel together in numbers. Uh, and, then, and they'd be able to... Uh, be less of a target. Exactly the same thing for Jacob. He's now traveling back with this family around him. And uh, he says, in this sense of humility, that one of the marks is a beautiful, you know, if, if we now measure our success by the, the smart clothes that we wear or the, uh, the smart jewelry that we have or the, the nice curtains or the nice... Uh, furniture that we've got. One of the ways that it was measured in those days is people would look at your flocks and your herds and they would say, well, they're quality animals. Quality. Look at them. They're all quality. They're, they're all purebred. And Jacob turns around and he says to Laban, listen, let me take the, let me take the speckled, let me take the marked, let me take all of those um, those sheep that are not quite the, the, the mark, the ones that everybody would look at. I'll take them. I'll take them as my wages. Uh, and you keep all of the pure ones, all of the perfected ones, all of the ones that look great. Just, just leave me with those. That's absolutely fine. And Laban looks at that and thinks, deal. Deal, but can't bring himself... To, to not try to win just that little bit more. So he says, yeah, that's great. Uh, we, I'll separate them out so we've got these flocks. I'm the one, Jacob says, who's been working diligently for you. So I'm, in a sense, I'm the one who's been, who's been the major contributor to this. 
Uh, let me take those and we'll separate them off. They'll become my flocks. You have all of your flocks. And if, if ever there's a sheep that's found in my flocks that's pure and unmarked, then you know I'm a thief. What a change in this man is going on. There's a humility that is beginning to emerge. There is a sensitivity, there is a a tenderness that is beginning to emerge from somebody who was always looking after number one to somebody who is now beginning maybe in life to not strive. Do you feel sometimes as if life is a constant strife? So if you're constantly pushing, constantly driving, trying to make the best, Jacob is this maturing example of beginning to say, actually, I can let go of certain things. I don't need to push certain things. I don't need to hold on to certain things because little by little, his reliance on this world is beginning to lessen and his trust in God is beginning to emerge. That's what we see in the life of Jacob. That's great, says Laban. And then that very day, before they have chance to actually go and separate out with Jacob the flocks, he rushes off, sorts out with his other sons to separate out all of the marked sheep. And then to give them to his sons for them to take them away. You go and and it says that he then manages to get, uh, in verse 34, agreed, said Laban, let it be as you've said, that same day he removed all the male goats that were streaked or spotted and all the speckled or spotted female goats uh, and all the uh, dark-colored lambs and he placed them in the care of his sons. Then he put a three-day journey between himself and Jacob. It's like Laban has won again. You know, he tricked Jacob with his daughters and now he's tricked him with his sheep. Yeah, of course you can. We'll sort that out. You have all of the marked ones. I know they're lesser. But what we'll do is um, I'll make sure that's fine. Off with his lads. Lads, you take those. Get, just get going. Three days journey. Jacob sees this. Well, he discovers it, I guess. But isn't it interesting that we don't read about Jacob discovering it. We don't read about him discovering it. You know, the, the, the immediate response would be, I would have thought, something like, hang on a sec, I know the kind of proportion that there were of, spot, uh, of dark sheep and goats and, and speckled sheep. I know that we had, and now there's none. In fact, when I look at it, there's even less flocks than we once had. What's going on? In other words, Laban said, yeah, that's fine. Whiz them off, and Jacob's left with nothing. Remarkable. And yet we don't read about Jacob turning around to Laban and saying, right, now, you've cheated me again. There is something going on in this guy where his attitude is changing. He just gets on with it. The next bit is fascinating and incredibly complex and and has tied the commentators up in knots. Because what we see is Jacob then stays 
it would seem for another few years, it would appear, because it seems as though he goes, stays with Laban for at least another few breeding cycles. But something goes on. He sees the strong, pure, uh, white beasts. Uh, and he, there's something going on about uh, fresh-cut branches, bark, in other words. And he, he strips it off the trees, and, and he strips the white. If you, if you imagine taking a piece of bark and opening it out flat like a piece of paper, and then inside what you would see is you would see the white, wouldn't you? you see the white of the inner of the bark, and on the outer would be the darker bark. And then what he did is he would strip the inner from, of bark away. So bark is made up of two layers. You strip the inner away, and you end up with stripes on this piece of bark. And it seems as though he placed those pieces of bark in the feeding troughs of the strong sheep uh, as they were ready to mate. And it seems as though every time that he placed these, stri these uh, striped pieces of bark, that there would be a mating, and what would result is striped, speckled, marked sheep, goats. And it happened again. And it happened again. And again and again, and then those marked goats started to breed with those marked goats. And, and all of a sudden, the flock is completely changed. It's transformed the balance of the flock. So that there is now a mass of speckled and marked goats and sheep. And, and the weaker sheep, he didn't put the bark down. And so there was no breeding from weak sheep. It was only the strong sheep. And so you ended up with a complete shift in, in, in the, in the uh, flock and the majority, the vast majority of the flock were now the marked ones, were the speckled ones. It completely turned around from none to virtually all of them. And the outcome of which is that Jacob's sons Chapter 31 and verse 1 say this. Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all this wealth from what belongs to our father. It's remarkable what happens. Once again we have the idea of the deceived or the deceiver rather being deceived. You see the pattern that's emerging. Laban the deceiver has this idea, I'll trick Jacob, and yet what happens is, remarkably, it all turns round again. It's a strange story, isn't it? It's strange in one sense because we pretty much know, don't we, that putting striped bark in feeding troughs doesn't change the genetic characteristics of sheep and goats. You know, Jacob, Jacob hasn't hit on something which is just quite remarkable. Stripy bark doesn't make stripy sheep. So what's going on? What is happening? Why is this significant to us? I think it's significant because what we see again 
and repeated throughout this story. It's almost as though the outcome is the end bracket of what Laban says in the first place. When Laban says in verse 27, If I have found favour in your eyes, please stay. I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. The Lord has blessed me because of you. It's a remarkable statement, isn't it? And it's as though what we see is Jacob living out that continually. The Lord has blessed Laban when Jacob has been committed to working for him, supporting him and encouraging him. But when Laban tries to cheat him again, it's as though God reinforces the blessing and says and, and identifies particularly and specifically the blessing is upon Jacob, Laban. That's where the blessing is. You may sit alongside, you might be blessed because I am blessing Laban, uh, Jacob rather. You might have, if you like, a, a sideways blessing. That is a, it's remarkable. That is exactly what God promises. In Genesis earlier on, he promises to Abraham that that is what is going to happen when he, blessed, when he blesses uh, Abraham, those who love Abraham and respect Abraham and value Abraham will all also be blessed. It's like a valuing of Jacob a loving of Jacob has a sideways benefit. You think, well, why would God, why would God do that? Why would God bless one and just allow the other one to receive a blessing because he's blessing one specifically? I think it's wrapped up in this specific statement that Laban makes. And it's powerful for you and it's powerful for me today. There is two ways in which we can know God. We can observe God or we can enter into relationship with God. There's two things. Laban does the first. Laban observes God. Laban is a fascinating character. If you can remember way back when we saw Rebecca going to be with um, Isaac. Laban, who is the brother, sees the way it works out and he says to Abraham's servant, the Lord is in this. God is in this. I can see that God is working. And right at the beginning of our reading this afternoon, we can see that Laban sees that as well, but he doesn't see it in the right way. I've learned by divination, or spiritism, that the Lord has blessed me because of you. He's observing it. He's seeing that there is a blessing. He's seeing God. But it's Jacob who's in relationship with God. That pattern is exactly the pattern that is established again here. And becomes the pattern that follows right the way through the New Te Old Testament and into the New Testament. 
It is possible for all of us to observe God but not be in relationship with him. It's possible for us to see but not know. And Jacob and Laban are a stark contrast in that observation. In a gathering like this, I I reckon it's really possible that we would have folks here who would be in the category of observing. You look on and you can see that there there is some sort of something. Can't put your finger on it. But you know that there is something going on in your friends who are believers in Jesus. You know that there is something in their lives. That there is some sort of blessing. Something special. You might not like all that's going on. You might not even like all that they stand for. You might not like all that they say. But there is something. And the danger is that we can be observers of that. And it becomes, if you like, God's way of speaking to us. But we only stop at the point of being observers. That's where Laban stays. He stays at the point of being an observer and not moving to the point of being in relationship with the God of Jacob. I've seen by divination, but I'll carry on uh, trying to work it out for myself. I'll not trust the God who has blessed you. That was the invitation, wasn't it? That's the invitation, Laban. You've seen that God is blessing Jacob. Would it be possible that God might bless you as well? Might it be possible that God might lay his hand on you in blessing? Why would you not take the step and trust that God? Or are you going to only... You see, this is Laban's problem. He had no love of relationship with that God. He only wanted to use that God because it blessed him with more riches. He only wanted more out of it. So stay, Jacob, because whenever you stay, you're like the, the kind of the God lucky charm that, that keeps us, that keeps, keeps providing for me. So stay. I don't love you, God. But I love what I get out of him. That's not love, is it? It's not love. It's never love to say, I love you for what you can give me. (laughs) Real love is I love you because I love you. Not what I can get out of it. I just love you. And yet so many of us are on that very dangerous place of being observers of God. So, okay. Is our currency of blessing today speckled sheep? No, thankfully, it's not speckled sheep. It's not actually even riches. Although many people might try to persuade you that it is riches. It's kind of tangible money. Thankfully, that's not even the blessing of God today. We, We look at a time in the Old Testament where blessing was seen by tangible possession. By, by land, by a promised land, a physical land. But we've now moved into a new covenant where there's a new promise and a new blessing. And it is a new land. It's a land that we see uh, in hope. It's the hope of a new, new life in Christ. And therefore, isn't it totally obvious that the blessings associated with that 
would be spiritual blessings as well. And that starts to get right to the very uh, core of why you might look on and see friends. And why you might, as believers in Jesus, at times, might be looking to the wrong thing as a measure of our blessing. So if you are a believer in Jesus and looking at this and thinking, therefore that means that the only way that God is blessing me is if I start to get all of the things that God has promised me. (laughs) And I would say, listen, God has already given you all of those things. They are spiritual blessings. They are a security and riches in heaven. And the blessing that we have now in this world is that deep-seated inner confidence and hope that that is our blessing. And that, in our society today, is riches beyond measure, isn't it? Isn't that rich to be able to live in this world, to live in this life, and to know that no matter what comes along, I cannot be be destroyed. I cannot be crushed. I have a hope which is greater than the now, greater than the tangible. And and to be reminded of that is to be reminded of the blessing of God that we have in the way that Jacob was blessed. And to be observing that and to say, do you know what? That's, that's what they've got. That's what my friend has got. I know that there is something going on in their life which somehow... They don't, they, they get rocked. They're just like me. I know that they find that there is, that life is tough at times. They're not immune from difficulties, but there is a deeper foundation. There is something which is securing in their life. That's what's appealing. Do you know what that is? I would suggest that is exactly what we see here. That is what God is doing in this world today. He says, I will display my blessing through my people as an example in this world so that those like Laban might look on with the opportunity to make the decision to not carry on being observers, but to start to come into relationship with. What a transformation that takes place. That's what we need to do. I want to close with this final thought. Speckled, marked sheep and goats are incredibly significant in the Old Testament. Jacob said, leave me with all the marked ones. Leave me with all of the speckled ones. I'll I'll have a flock of speckled goats. They'll be my blessing. They're not the perfect, they're not the pure, they're not the thoroughbred. They're the marked ones, but I'll have all of those. I'll count them as great. Further down the line, God's people, once again, are in exile. They're away from their homeland. They're in Egypt. And uh, God says to them, as they are really now treated as slaves, oppressed, beaten, God says, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to set you free. This is what you're to do. You're to take a goat. You're to take a lamb. But it has got to be unblemished. It says in, in Exodus, 
Your lamb should be without blemish, a male of the first year, and you should take it out from the sheep or from the goats, but it's got to be unblemished. And then I want you to slay that lamb and mark the door and eat, and eat the lamb as a, as a supper and mark the door with the blood. And then at that moment, when I see the blood, I am going to pass over you and you're going to be saved. A, a perfect lamb gets slain. And then later on, Jesus comes along and he describes himself as the lamb. And he's the one who gets slain. And he's the one who dies the perfect spotless lamb. For what? For a flock of speckled, marked lambs and goats. If we're using that metaphor of being the flock, and Jesus is the perfect spotless lamb that is slain, what he takes, what he values, what he loves, what becomes his possession of the speckled and marked ones. The ones that actually aren't good enough to be acceptable. The ones that nobody really wants. Certainly God wouldn't accept. The ones that are marked. That's exactly what Jacob says. I'll take the ones that nobody wants and I'll treasure them and they will become my flock. And he would never have understood what he was saying at that point in time, in in the way that God was working this out, in the way that it becomes this amazing picture that would say, listen, we are the speckled flock. We are the marked flock. The ones who are believers in Jesus, like Jacob becomes a picture of the one who gathers together and who brings together this speckled flock and treasures them. And it's treasured because the perfect lamb gets sacrificed. Isn't it remarkable the way God prepares for us little stepping stones of ideas? That's why I want to encourage you two things. Make sure that you are on a journey to the proper homeland. Number one. Number two. You are, I am, a speckled goat. I'm I'm the one that nobody wants. But I love the idea that Jesus is the one who wants me and you if we trust in him. That's great news, isn't it?